Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. My name is Jean. I'm a person in successful long-term recovery from alcohol addiction, and I write about my five, more than five years of sobriety over at unpickledblog.com. And I tell my story there, and I invite you to tell your story here. And that is exactly how tonight's guest arrived on our podcast. Gabby's a listener who wrote in to let us know how the bubble hour was supporting her sober lifestyle. And when I heard her story, I asked her to come on and share it with all of you. So Gabby had her first drink at the age of 13 and has spent the majority of her adult life as a high-functioning alcoholic. She's a little over three years sober. She's been divorced for one year and is a full-time user interface designer and developer for a large networking company in San Jose, California. Gabby turned to alcohol for comfort when her seemingly perfect life was turned upside down by the housing crash in 2008, and she soon found herself in the hospital fighting for her life. Even that was not her bottom, though, and her hope is that by sharing her story, she can help others spare themselves from similar experiences. So I welcome you to the Bubble Hour. Gabby, thank you for being here. Thank you, Jean, for having me. Um, I just was really touched by your story and your willingness to share it because sometimes when people have ridden the elevator a long way down, um, there's, there's shame that goes with it. And I think when I read your story, I was really struck by the joy that you have in everyday life. And I'm really excited for, you know, you to share all of that with our listeners. So I'm going to just turn it over to you right now and just ask you to share with us your your story all right well thank you again for having me on the show i'm honored to share my story with you and your listeners when i sent you my story i was surprised by how quickly you responded and invited me to share my story i am 44 years old and recently passed my three-year sober anniversary on july 23rd 2016 It is my hope that my story will give someone who is struggling with alcoholism a better understanding of the nature of the disease and to offer hope to anyone who is new to recovery. My story is also for the loved ones of alcoholics, that it provides them more information of why alcoholism is in fact a disease, a disorder of the brain, and a malady of the spirit. I do belong to a 12-step program, but I will not reference them much as to respect the traditions of the fellowship. Okay, I was born and raised in Marin County, California, just north of San Francisco. On the surface, Marin County is probably one of the nicest communities for raising a child. My parents were loving parents and are married for 50 years now. I have two sisters who are fraternal twins and only one year younger than me. My maternal grandparents' house was just three doors down from our house, and my aunt and my uncle and my cousins lived next door to us. My childhood had no trauma, 
just the typical ups and downs most families go through. I went to Catholic school and transitioned into public school in seventh grade. I was very sheltered before middle school, so the adjustment to public school was a bit of a culture shock. I had a pretty easy time making friends, but I was willing to do whatever it took to become one of the crowd. I felt out of touch with my peers and had a hard time relating to some of the mentality of the kids. Many seemed so grown up compared to me, some were adult-like and sophisticated. I was offered my first drink at 13 in the eighth grade by one of my new friends before a, high school, or before a school dance. It was a mix of various distilled spirits, not wine or beer, just distilled spirits. My girlfriend called it a suicide. I got very sick at the dance. My parents caught me and gave me a good lecture when I got home. My friends were caught as well, and one was even pulled from our school and placed into private school because she was so sick that the paramedics had to come and help her remove her from the dance by ambulance. This first experience left a strong impression on me, mostly because of the consequence of my friend who got so sick. I avoided drinking again until the age of 15. When I started high school, I was receiving a lot of attention from the older boys. They offered me beer more times than I could count, but my recollection of being sick from drinking was still in the forefront of my mind, so I said no. I didn't recall enjoying the sensation of being drunk that first time, so I wasn't tempted. I started drinking socially on the second half of my freshman year of high school. The first time was at a friend's house down the street from the high school before another dance. This time it was only beer, and I didn't get sick. I took to it like an experienced drinker. I really liked the way it loosened me up. It took all, away all of the anxiety and worry I was having over the boys and gave me a sense of calm. After the dance, I became a weekend binge drinker, beer mostly. But I was, if I was offered anything else, I would drink it. I blacked out now and then, but for the most part, my memory stayed clear, especially with beer. I would take anything from my parents' house I could find to drink, but I mostly drank outside of the home as their supply was small. Boys and booze became my passion and my new hobby. My studies didn't suffer much, but I put in the least amount of effort and still managed to get by. My first real consequence from drinking at age 15 was falling off a sidewalk curb in front of a teenager's house who was throwing a kegger party. I hit my forehead on the tailpipe of an old vehicle and blood started gushing from my head. My parents took me, my friends took me home right away because they were scared and didn't know what to do. My parents put me in the car and took me to the emergency room where I was treated with three stitches. I still have the scar right above my right eyebrow. The ER doctor said to my parents, your daughter is drunk. She has a drinking problem. I was too coherent for the amounts I had drank. My parents didn't know what to say to the doctor. I think they denied it. When I asked my mom recently why they didn't try to get me help, I realized they didn't understand the severity of my problem because I was hiding it so well. I don't blame them at all. So they took me home and gave me another good lecture the next day. I think in the 1980s, parents were more concerned about drugs than drinking. Even at school, we were warned about drugs often, but drinking, it just wasn't addressed and the culture of my school was party hard. I was drinking weekly for the rest of my high school days. 
I had a pretty rough time dealing with the attention from the boys. I was sexually harassed often by older boys the first two years of high school. I was also misunderstood by many of my female friends. I had a hard time knowing who I could trust, and I felt alone even when I wasn't. My reputation was worse than I ever was. I drank a lot over this, and that's when I realized I was an emotional drinker. Now that I am sober, I can see I was dating the wrong guys to fill fill an empty void. About 85% of the guys I was with would not have had a chance in hell with the sober me. Alcohol was making most of my decisions regarding the men I allowed into my life. I got a job as a paid intern with a large insurance company when I was a senior in high school for 20 hours per week after school. Older guys weren't around anymore, so it was easier to focus on school and work. This curbed my behavior, and I was functioning pretty well that year during my school and work week. I was starting to think my drinking problem was something that occurred only out of boredom and boy troubles, but I wasn't able to relate to my friends much as I felt we were having different views regarding life. I was always deep in thought and had a tough time finding friends to share deep thoughts with, so I drank a lot while I was around them. Some friends pointed out that I had an issue. So I started to stay in on Friday nights, and I drank alone and watched movies instead of going out to parties. This is when my isolated drinking really started for me. I enjoyed drinking alone and getting lost. The year after I graduated high school, I had an ectopic pregnancy. I was only 19. I had been in extreme pain and bleeding for weeks and dismissed my symptoms as I was good at dismissing many things that should have alarmed me. I was about nine weeks pregnant when I finally went for help. The doctor gave me an ultrasound. They discovered the fetus was stuck inside my left fallopian tube. They sent me home anyway. I was bleeding so much that night, so I went to the emergency room. I was taken in immediately for emergency surgery. While they were removing the unviable fetus via C-section, I started to hemorrhage blood on the operating table. I was given several blood transfusions transfusions and was in the hospital for over a week after my surgery my surgeon told me I almost didn't make it my reproductive organs were saved but my spirit was broken in many ways I was out of commission to work at my new job for about six months and I was healing from the surgery and couldn't even drive while I was recovering I threw away the pain medication they gave me because pain medication does nothing for me and I drink wine mostly out of pain, sadness, self-pity, boredom. Most of my friends were away at college, and here I was lying on the couch watching soap operas day in and day out like an elderly woman. At the time of the atopic pregnancy, I was in a serious relationship with my boyfriend, and he was absent a lot as I was cramping his style. I had to drop my classes at community, community college uh, that upcoming fall, and I was eventually laid off from my part-time job at a stock brokerage firm. This experience was my first real taste of chronic alcoholism, the depression, the sadness, the daily drinking, the boredom, the self-loathing, the self-pity, the resentments were all coming to the surface. Once I was healed from surgery, I resumed my life with my boyfriend. He made a good living, and we partied like rock stars for about five years. I never did drugs, but I was a party girl. My emotions and my drinking put a strain on us, and I eventually decided to end the relationship because it was so toxic. 
and we were just too young and dysfunctional to make it as a married couple. So after we broke up, I moved back in full-time with my parents, and I drank almost daily beer and wine for about a year. After a year of mourning my relationship, I decided to start working again because I knew it was time to start earning money and grow up. I also dropped most of my community college classes. Even though I had a GPA of 3.8, I was tired of trying to transfer into a four-year college and working at the same time. So I got a job as a receptionist at a successful software company and started my career path in tech, in the tech field. I loved computers and the internet was blooming. So I was super excited about technology and I felt some hope again for my future. When I was turning 25, I decided to move out of my parents' home. So I did a geographical change and moved to Orange County. A geographical is when a person thinks that moving to a new environment will change or cure their behavior. I promised myself I would drink only beer. I mostly kept that promise for nearly eight years. I quickly found another job in tech and I moved into web design and eventually found a career path to focus my energy on. I was dating a man who was 22 years older than me for seven years. He was in recovery from heroin addiction but my drinking didn't bother him too much as I was managing it well and it wasn't affecting my productivity or our relationship on a large scale. Most of the time, people who were very close to me had no idea of the quantities I was drinking. I would get caught from time to time from the evidence in the garbage can, but I always dismissed it and started to haul my bottles away when no one was around to notice. The older guy I was dating was a surfer, not very ambitious, but had a good heart and looked after me like a father in some ways. Looking back, I realize now he was 12-stepping me all that time. I just was unaware of it. We bought a few condos and flipped them. After seven years, we broke up because the age difference was catching up with us. I I wasn't interested in getting married, and neither was he. We gradually became disconnected. So I bought him out of our last condo, and I was on my own with a mortgage. I was doing okay, but scared. I never wanted to be alone. So my drinking gradually increased, and I started hanging out with other heavy drinkers. In early 2005, one of my neighbors was having a birthday party and asked me to join her, as it would be only her and her boyfriend's guy friends. She wanted a female around. The night I met my now ex-husband, This was the night when my world changed forever. I will start by saying my ex is a good guy, but overly optimistic and not great at sharing important information with me. He was going through a nasty divorce when I met him, and I felt so sorry for him. He lived 500 miles north in Lodi, California. At the time, he was working for a large mortgage lender selling subprime mortgages in the wholesale sector. He was making a great living, seemed to be very put together, and had a lot going for him. He also liked to drink and go out dancing, and I just fell for him, so I thought. See, I was drunk the night we met. My guard was very down at that time. I was extremely lonely, was in between jobs, but my finances were still in good shape. I was drinking more than I cared to admit to myself at the time and hard booze had finally entered the picture. My alcoholism over time 
fell for him too, as he was not one to tell me to stop. He liked the party girl side of me. His ex-wife was not a drinker. He was legally separated when we met. I should have paid more attention. There were red flags everywhere. One red flag was waking up to her standing over our bed and screaming at us. That was the universe sounding the alarm, but I was consistent about dismissing things that should alarm me. She stalked us often, harassed us in different ways that aren't considered illegal. She knew where the line was, and she didn't cross over it. Within a few weeks of meeting, he asked me to move in with him. So I rented out my condo, and we moved all my belongings to Lodi, California. This is when the true Bible began. I wasn't working. We were drinking almost nightly, going out to real estate broker parties, and living large. I did get my real estate license, but I never used it. When I felt guilty over him paying for everything, he said my job was to support his career. So I let it go and enjoyed the easier life. I must have felt that I deserved an easier life since I'd been working so hard for so many years. We got engaged in early 2006 while he was still settling his divorce. I didn't pay attention to it much as he didn't complain and he gave his ex-wife what she had fought for. The engagement ring was a 3.5 carat emerald cut diamond. How on earth could I say no? Now, I'm not the type of girl who fantasized over this type of thing happening. I liked working, and I never thought I would be satisfied as a stay-at-home wife. I said yes. We married in October 2006, the same year his divorce was settled. Before we were married, he bought an oversized custom home. I suggested he not purchase it in case something happened and he would lose his income. Even at my best, I cannot pay $8,000 a month for a mortgage. He said we would be fine. After all, he was making about $600,000 per year selling loans. It seemed reasonable to me. I just let it go. I turned against my conservative nature and took a chance. I sold my house and placed all my bets on him. I thought that getting married and having a man take care of me was the natural progression of things. Neither one of us desired to have children, so we were just living the good life. In the fall of 2007, right before our one-year anniversary, he comes home to drop the first bomb on me. He lost his high-paying job, and we were going to lose our house to foreclosure. My biggest nightmare came true. And the beginning of our country's economic crisis caused by the mortgage collapse began. I was at the forefront. We stayed in this mini mansion house for about four extra months. I insisted that we move to Silicon Valley because I have tech skills and his brother owns a mortgage retail company there. He could work for his brother for commission only. We sold everything we could sell and racked up lots of credit card debt to survive. Rented a home in Campbell just outside of San Jose where I'm currently living. In early 2008, I started looking for work. I couldn't get an offer. In just a few short years, I ruined my career by letting my tech skills become obsolete. While I was looking for work and the debts were mounting, two more bombs were dropped on me. My husband had a $150,000 IRS debt due to the fact that he had to cash out his 400000 401k to pay his ex-wife part of her settlement, and he still owed her a full $250,000 court judgment. I learned quickly that these, this $400,000 debt is not the type of debt that can be forgiven and had to be paid. This is when I truly lost hope for my future. 
to lose a house is one thing. To lose years of future earnings is a whole other story. I was beyond devastated, and I felt completely lost and hopeless. No one could help us out of this, and I just had no solutions for our problems. My only solution was to drink about my life. I was in so much emotional pain. This was the beginning of my daily drinking of vodka. I drank and I slept. I slept and I drank. My husband was out of the office for long hours all day, every day, trying to restart his career. I knew I was drink- He knew I was drinking heavily, but didn't say much about it too often as he was in survival mode. I was drunk every day of that year. I drank about a half handle of vodka almost daily. A handle of vodka is 1.75 milliliters. Some days more, some days less, some days two to three bottles of wine. But I drank every day. At 36, 20 years after my drinking career started, I became a full-blown alcoholic and reached end-stage alcoholism. In the fall of 2008, I became aware that what was happening to us, losing our home, was also happening to many families in the United States. My husband was a contributor to the mortgage collapse, and my my resentment towards him was mounting by the minute. I will pause here to say that the story going forward is pretty intense. I might stop to take a breath. I hope to breathe through it as it is the most important piece of my active alcoholism. This is a part of my story I sent to you, Jean. Mm-hmm. In February 2009, my body sounded off several serious alarms, and I listened for once. My husband drove me to the ER at the county hospital here in San Jose, California. Since we were broke and had no health insurance, my only choice was a public hospital. My symptoms were distended and very painful abdomen, yellow skin and eyes, jaundice nosebleeds, bruises all over my body and cuts from shaving my legs that wouldn't heal. I could barely walk and I had bad tremors. I was four days sober and my withdrawal symptoms were unmanageable. I entered at the emergency room and was rushed in as soon as the nurse saw me. My condition was already critical. I had liver failure. I told them how much I drank and that I had been sober for four days. I mentioned that I'm an alcoholic. They assured me they already knew. The doctors confirmed my diagnosis with an MRI, non-viral hepatitis, alcoholic liver disease. Because I was allergic to the dye contrast for the MRI, they accidentally shut my kidneys down. Early the following morning, I was informed by the doctor who was assigned to my case that I had 72 hours to live at most. No one survives liver and kidney failure. What she didn't tell me was that she was responsible for shutting my kidneys down. This is a nightmare of a disease, not just what it does to us mentally, but what it does in the end is a horror show. I was jaundiced. I had intestinal bleeding. I had a distended abdomen because my liver was four times its natural size and so inflamed. This is how my liver shut down. Then I gained 40 pounds of fluid and couldn't walk because I had elephant-sized legs. That occurred when my kidneys shut down. They gave me a paracentesis. This is a procedure to stick a tube in my abdomen to extract a few gallons of fluid from my body to alleviate my discomfort and to test the fluid for infection. It was extremely disgusting and mortifying. I was in denial that I was dying, even though everything was shutting down quickly. 
While all of this was occurring, the doctor who shut down my kidneys asked me to sign a do not resuscitate order twice. I refused. She was very annoyed with me and kept telling me I brought this on myself and I have no one else to blame. I still thought the kidney damage was my doing. On day three, when my body could no longer process the ammonia, um, I, I got encephalopathy in my brain and I entered into a coma and was sent to an intensive care unit. My parents, sisters, and my, and my husband were called to the hospital and told the grim news that I was not going to make it through the night. Up until my hospitalization, no one in my family knew how severe my drinking had become. The doctors explained to my family that I'm an organ donor, that they would be harvesting some of my vi- vital organs, my viable organs. My heart, my lungs, and my kidneys were at the top of the list. When they mentioned my kidneys, my family was stunned. They thought they were as damaged as my liver due to my drinking. This is when the ICU doctor told them that the hospital accidentally shut my kidneys down, that if my kidneys were placed inside a healthy person's body, they would be working just fine. My family started hollering and demanded they do everything to save me. They even threatened to sue if I were to die because of negligence. They decided to listen to my family and inserted a tube into my neck and aorta to give me emergency dialysis. I'm not sure how much time had passed, but it was probably just a few hours. I woke up from my coma. I knew I was going to survive. This was the starting point of my fight. The next two weeks in the ICU were the most excruciatingly painful weeks of my life. It is as close to hell as I can imagine. At the time, I was praying for death or praying for a full recovery. I watched myself die daily. The priest on staff came by and prayed over me daily with my permission. Looking back, I realized he was giving me my last rites. This is how most of us die in the end. Whatever the disease or cause, this is how we die. I experienced end of life. I still wait to meet someone with my experience. I was moved out of ICU. I had to have a surgery to remove the dialysis tube that was inserted into my neck and created a new port for three entry points into my chest and into my arteries for dialysis treatment treatment to continue. This procedure was done without anesthesia as my blood pressure was too low and anesthesia would have killed me. I somehow made it through that surgery without feeling pain or discomfort. The following weeks were treatments of steroids to shut my immune system down, countless plasma and blood transfusions, shots of injections into my abdominal wall to reach my intestines to stop the bleeding, and more drugs than I even know. I had to use a bedpan. The choice was that or a diaper. I had a little brain damage and was talking backwards for a few weeks. When I was out of the woods, I had a long road of healing. Since the hospital messed up and shut my kidneys down, they gave me the best care, and every specialist that was needed there worked on my case. The original doctor who was assigned to me and shut my kidneys down was dismissed from my case and reassigned. I never saw her again. I call her Dr. Death. She was the angel of death. I wasn't charged a dime, as they knew I could easily file a lawsuit and win, or my family could sue for more if I died. I never sued them. I was too grateful to be alive. I was in the hospital for a little over two months. 
I was told that I would most likely need to be put in a convalescent home if my condition didn't improve, improve enough to leave the hospital. I couldn't walk, and I needed a walker to slowly build up my strength. I was determined to get out of there. I walked out and was readmitted a week later for four days because of complications from my med- medication and kidneys. My final day when I was leaving, a random nurse said to me in the elevator, you need to get used to asking people for help. I was able to go home, but was still on dialysis treatment for three, three times per week. After three months of dialysis, my kidneys spontaneously restarted. No one could believe it. For some reason, I could believe it. I knew I was going to make it. My prognosis was death for six months after the day my liver shut down. They were going to send me to UCSF to discuss putting me on a transplant list. That never had to happen. It took two years for my liver to regenerate. My hair started falling out slowly, so I lost half the hair on my head because I was in survival mode. No menstruation for 16 months. While I was recovering slowly, I rebuilt my muscles as they had atrophied and I was down to 95 pounds. I am five foot five. That is skin and bone for my frames. By midsummer 2009, I tossed out the oxycodone that my doctors prescribed to me for rheumatoid arthritis joint pain that was brought to the surface from my trauma that my body endured. I got a medical marijuana card as it is legal to smoke medical marijuana in California. It helped me to start moving my body and get my activity, my activity level back up. I also started learning new programming skills through online tutorials and found freelance work on Craigslist. I labeled my ads as web designer and I worked from my bed with my laptop for the next two years. I built almost 20 websites and worked for a small startup company remotely. When my portfolio portfolio was strong, I posted my resume on a job portal for technical professionals. And within a few short hours in late July 2011, a recruiter for a giant networking company contacted me for a full-time web developer position as a consultant. I interviewed for that position and was offered the job the next day. This contract paid very well. My life changed overnight because I'd be bringing in a very steady and high income. This was my ticket out of my husband's debt and my marriage. I wanted out since 2008. For all those years, I had no social life outside of seeing my family from time to time. I spent those years working and rebuilding my health. I was still isolated and life wasn't horrible, but it certainly wasn't beautiful. I was tolerating my marriage because my focus was to get us out of our financial distress and to build my career and my health. I never went to a 12-step program, never sought help, never even looked online for sober people. I felt cured since I hadn't drank, but I did smoke medical marijuana. Even though things were getting better after three and a half years, I started drinking again. I treated myself and my husband to a much-needed vacation to Las Vegas. I had no intentions of drinking. I just had an effort moment in a loud restaurant. I was annoyed, and I wanted to leave, and my husband wanted to stay, as it was a place he had been wanting to try for years. So I ordered two glasses of wine that night. He didn't stop me, but it wasn't his job to stop me. He just said, I got my wife back. Only beer and wine from July 2012 to July 2013, I kept my promise. 
The first three months of my relapse were good. I managed to control it. The six months, by six months, I was drinking, and I was drinking heavily to get drunk. After nine months, I was drinking nearly daily. I was losing weight, bruising easily again, cuts on my body weren't healing, and started to have nosebleeds regularly, vomiting every morning. I knew I was going down fast. I found a great outpatient program, and it was covered by my insurance, Kaiser Chemical, Kaiser Chemical Dependency Recovery Program, a 16-month program. The director of my program did my intake at treatment because of my history. He said to me, you need this program so badly because you should be dead. You are a miracle. I initially signed up for two weeks. But once I was in, I learned more about what they had to offer and decided to go all the way. I wanted to give myself the best chance at success because I knew that if I were to relapse again, I would be dead within a year, and my doctor confirmed this fact. So I took a few weeks off of work for day treatment, seven days per week, per week. And after that, I was able to work and continue treatment after work hours. This was the best choice I could have made. The CDRP program at Kaiser is wonderful. I had access to all the information about addiction and counseling I needed. I learned how to become social again and I was extreme, because I was extremely isolated. Group therapy is probably what was the most valuable for me. It taught me how to connect with other human beings. This was key in my early recovery. My first time at a 12-step program was my first day at treatment. I had no idea a 12-step program was part of the program, but I went every day for the first 30 days. I found a wonderful sponsor right away. Actually, she found me. I completed outpatient treatment without a relapse in 16 months. I followed the program to the letter. I'm forever grateful to the Kaiser CDRP staff in Santa Clara. They saved my life. <laughs> Excuse me. They gave me the tools and the skills I need in order to have a high quality of life. The month I finished my treatment, my husband and I filed for divorce. My divorce was finalized on my second sober birthday, July 23rd, 2015. My ex and I paid all his debts. His ex-wife was paid off in the spring of 2014. The IRS was paid off in the spring of 2015. All other debts incurred were paid too. We were finally debt-free after nine years. His career was back on track as well. I supported him as much as I could and did my best under the circumstances. I'm currently a user-faced designer and developer at that giant networking company. I own my own townhouse that I purchased last September. I've taken 13 flying lessons, gone to Europe four times in the past three years, Hawaii a few times. I take Pilates classes two to three times per week. My life is very full and so much fun. My health is absolutely perfect. I have a life. I have a sober life. Life isn't just good. Life is great. I want all your listeners to know, without a doubt, this disease is progressive. For many years, I was a high-functioning alcoholic with a few bad years in between. I knew from the start I had a problem, but I never asked for help. I could go days and sometimes weeks without drinking. 
All it takes for us to get to end-stage alcoholism is one life-altering event and zero or few coping skills. I am lucky to be alive. I do not want to see anyone else go through the pain and suffering I experienced. That's it. And I've been holding my breath while you're talking. I just realized that. (laughs) That, my heart is just pounding. Um, Thank you so much, Gabby, for being willing to go back to a time that must be extremely difficult to remember and to think about. Um, We all, I think we all, you know, some, some people talk about their sacred bottom, you know, that, that thing that, that turned us around and um, you really went right, right, right to the edge and, and saw what waits for us. And um, I, I know several women who have died of this disease and it really does hit home to me that if we don't stop, it can kill us. And some of us stop before we get a DUI and some of us stop, you know, because maybe we were wetting the bed at night and, and some people stop farther down the line. And the fact of the matter is it doesn't matter how good or bad you were when you stopped. What matters is that if we hadn't stopped, that could have been any one of us in your shoes. And, um, and we were spared that experience and I'm extremely grateful that you're alive um, because too many people don't, don't make it back. And I'm, I'm grateful that you're not only living joyfully, but that you're willing to Mm -hmm. share it because um, I think there's, there's people who probably know that they're, they're pushing it too far and, um, and they, they need to pull back. So you're saving lives with your, with your willingness to get super uncomfortable right now. (laughs) I want to ask you some questions. I I was making notes as, as you, as you spoke and, you know, there's a few things we talked about, about discussing afterwards. But first, I want to go back to a couple things that came up for me while you were telling your story. And the, the first thing is I want to know how you felt as a young girl when that doctor saw the reality of your situation. Was part of you relieved that someone was trying to help you? Or were you angry or in denial? How did you feel in that moment when your, that doctor told your parents you needed help? I think um, I think the disease had already had a good grip on me, and I really think that I'm getting away with this no matter what I do, and I can keep going. Mm-hmm. I really felt more defiant than anything else because I just hadn't been experienced with this enough. I mean, I did scare myself. I, I, I will say that, but um, I, I, I think, as I mentioned, you probably saw this theme like alarms, alarms, alarms were going off through my life that just were not scaring me enough. And um, mm-hmm. I'm one of those people who I am a true and blue alcoholic, all or nothing, black or white, one extreme or the other. And um, I, I just, um, I didn't feel relieved. Um, you would think I would have felt relieved. But I, I also wasn't in that point of where I was feeling shame yet. Um, the shame came much later, I think. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the what, community I was living in, alcohol drinking was very socially acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, right. So you, I think I think a lot of us looking back realize that, I mean, even though we may not have thought we were alcoholics at the time, we drank problematically. It was just so normalized in the yeah. environment that we were in. It was just having you, fun. 
Do you think there was something you needed to hear at that time? Like if you could talk to yourself as a young, if you could go back in time and talk to young Gabby, what would you say to her? Do you think there's anything that could have, that you needed to hear at that time that would have made a difference? Yes. It's very interesting. I was um, actually interviewed by a family with a little girl who a couple weeks ago at work, and they were um, asking me this question, what, what advice would you give your 12-year-old self? And this, this was more about my career, not about my alcoholism. And I said to her, the advice I would have given to my 12-year-old self is that do not let anybody tell you who you are. Don't let how other people view you define you. Because how they view you is not the truth. And at that point in my life when I was 15, I was letting all that external chatter affect me in a very negative way. I was called a slut by boys even though I didn't do anything. Some of my friends and some of the older girls thought I was being slutty. And I was a virgin. And I just started gaining a very low self-opinion and my self-esteem was just whittling away and I know that drinking helped me deal with those emotions that I wasn't ready to, to deal with I didn't have the coping skills I didn't have the maturity to express how I was feeling or talk to my parents about it you know sex when you're that age especially when you're a virgin it's very shameful and I kind of was one of those kids who bloomed right over summer like Eighth grade, I looked like a little girl. By ninth grade, I looked like a young woman. Um, and so for me, I went through a growth, growth spurt that was something I wasn't ready to handle yet. So my advice that I would have given myself is don't let how other people view you define you. Because those, those years were the turning point for me in the way I started viewing myself. Like my looks only mattered. I wasn't that smart. Um, so I really didn't focus much on my studies as much as I should have. Um, I really just kind of took the low road instead of the high road because I just didn't know how to take the high road, high road. And being an alcoholic, and you know how our thinking patterns are, um, we really have a distorted view of um, life. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I just allowed way too much external chatter and opinion to affect um, my point of view of myself, you know. And then I started behaving in those ways that I was being accused of behaving because that's who everyone thought I was. So I just rolled with it, which is terrible, you know, but that's what I did because it's like, well, if that's what they think, you know, I'll show them. Right. um, It's really bad. (laughs) And I'm sure a lot of young girls go through this. I think they do. I actually think when we're young, you know, if we have this hunger to fit in and this like, you know, we're looking at other people with these searching eyes that they tell me who I am, tell me what you need from me, tell me who I need to be for you to like me. And mm-hmm. it, I, I, I really think that that vulnerability is young girls that who get labeled with that awful slut word. It's like, I think it's, it's a, it's the wrong way to explain that to hunger, you know, like they see mm-hmm. the hunger in a young girl's eyes and they think, Oh, she's like hungry for attention. She's hungry for, for love. She's hungry for men, but what she's hungry for is herself. <laughs> she's saying, yes, like, exactly. And uh, I mean, and I, I just, like I'm only figuring this girl. out now, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, you, you I, know, it's like you're a victim of how you I, looked. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was yeah. trying my best to fit in. I dressed the exact same way as my girlfriends did, but um, there was just something about me that 
the boys seem to take to. Um, I still have this issue with men, but I'm older now. I can handle it. I know how to deal with that kind of attention. Um, so I'm fine. But um, I think, you know, I was totally off guard. I mean, I just, I showed up at school and all of a sudden the boys in the quad are like shouting my name, like in unison, like 25 of them. And I, I was just walking by to go get my lunch at the lunch room. Um, it was, yeah. How does a, how does a girl know what to do with that? Right. It was, it was wild. It was really wild for me. And then I was a cheerleader and that kind of gave me some extra exposure. Um, so it was just more of it, more of it, more of it. Um, so um, but I was quite um, shy on the inside, um, even though I wanted to make friends and I was dying to fit in. Um, I, I, I was really shy and I didn't have a good sense of who I was. I want to jump forward a little bit before we, before we, I have some questions for you about, you know, the illness years. But you did say one thing that um, I want you to go back to and just tell me what you meant by it, because not all of our listeners would know. You talked about... Um, when you dated the older guy and you said, you know, looking back, you see that he was 12 stepping you. What mm-hmm. does that mean? <laughs> he was um, in a 12 step program. So uh, for his own uh, recovery from heroin addiction, he had been, I think about three years to four years sober by the time I met him. So he was just using a lot of language from the program and just saying things now and then about, we don't compare ourselves to other people. Um, you know, basically how acceptance is so key to happiness and just, just saying things all the time where I thought, oh, he's just older and wiser and he knows how the world works. And sometimes I would take his advice and sometimes I'd be like, yeah, you don't know what you're talking about and drink my beer. But um, when I got to treatment, it hit me right away. <laughs> oh, my God. He, I'm like, I gravitated to him for a reason even though I wasn't looking to to quit my behavior, I gravitated toward this man because I, I was working with him. So I kind of knew a little bit of his background. And I think there was a part of me who wanted to be healthier and knew that he would be a safe person to be healthy with because he did not have that lifestyle of drinking and partying. I mean, he was very clean living, surfer guy, very calm, very zen. And when I was in treatment, I was like, oh, my God. Oh my gosh! <laughs> it was all there. So, do you the think he planted time. seeds then? Yes. Did for that plant sure. seeds? And I think for that's you? why I took to it. It, it. He definitely planted seeds, and I think that's why I grasped um, the concept very quickly, and I didn't fight it like a lot of my friends who are patients kind of fought the philosophy. And I think I I kind of understood it quickly um, based on the information he had been feeding me off and on throughout those years. Well, I'm glad you went back and explained that because that's oh, that, thanks. that's really interesting, and and it's funny, you know, when you I'm not in a 12-step program, but I'm really familiar with it, and I know people that are, and and I often hear them like drop it into conversations that are that are not recovery related, and it just makes me smile mm-hmm. because it, you know, a lot of the lessons from any program, but from the the whole like experience of recovery relate to like so many aspects of life. It just Oh it's, yeah, it's really... that's why. <laughs> it's that I use it at giving. work. I I use it at work. I use it in every area of my life. Um, and it's it's just it's pretty wonderful. Um, 
I like to sometimes sit, I don't, I try not to 12-step anybody, but um, one thing I do like to say to people is, what was your part in this? Like, why are you so upset? So what was your part in that conversation or that situation? And when I, I ask them to look at themselves, they seem like kind of like, what? Like, what do you mean, what's my part? I'm like, well, life isn't just happening to you. You're an active participant. Like, what was your part? Like, tell me it so we can process it. Then we figure it out. It really, it really has helped um, me communicate with a lot of people um, in my personal life, even at, at work. But I really try to refrain from doing that often. That's cool, though. So I want to go back to, to um, you know, after you slowly built your way back from the brink of death to health again, and you chose to drink. And I'm really curious about that decision. Um, I wonder if there was like some part of you that was just indifferent to what that could do to you, or were you just naive, or what do you think was behind that decision to, to start drinking again? Well, I've been thinking about that, and part of it, I think, is that um, I still was in an altered state of thinking. I was uh, smoking medical marijuana pretty much daily, so um, I wasn't using the best judgment. I know that, and um, I'd been smoking it for a few years, so once once I got into treatment and I stopped smoking marijuana, I realized how it affected my thought process and how it was really slowing me down and turning my brain to mush. Once I mixed that with alcohol, it was like numb on top of numb. Um, mm. When I picked up that drink, I knew I was playing with fire, but I was also not at a place yet, even though I wanted out of my marriage, I wasn't at the place yet where I was going to be out of it anytime soon. So looking at him, not comparing, he didn't care that I was complaining that I was uncomfortable in the restaurant that we were in because the environment was too noisy for me. I thought this man doesn't care about me and he never did. And by taking that drink, it was like, I'm never going to get out of this marriage and I need an escape right now. And that's what I did. And then after that day, I didn't get drunk that day. In fact, I didn't get drunk for quite a few weeks, I think. Um, I think I really thought I had a a grip on it. I'm like, whatever happened to me is not going to happen to me again. Um, Oh, there were a few factors that led up to my liver damage that I thought might have contributed to it on top of the drinking. I was on antidepressants. I was on Lipitor for high cholesterol, and I was also on some kind of acne medication So part of my rationalizing this was, well, the medicine on top of the drinking must have caused the liver problem. So I really was in such an extreme amount of denial. Plus, I had not processed anything I had gone through. I had talked to nobody outside of my immediate family about the trauma I went through in that hospital. I did not go through counseling. I did not talk to friends. I was so isolated. I had no friends because I really was bedridden for quite a long time. I mean, I had nobody. So um, I think I was living on a different plane. Like I wasn't part of life. I was just somewhere living between like life and death. I was just somewhere in between. So whatever I was thinking, it wasn't rational thought. 
but I was uh, justifying my behavior, thinking that, wow, if I survived all that, I can conquer, I can figure out this demon and I'll beat it. I will, I will outsmart it and I will manage it and I will own it. But it, of course, owned me. <laughs> and I finally, when, toward the end of my relapse, I kept running away to hotel rooms to get away from my husband because he was driving me crazy. And I couldn't deal with my emotions around him. And I was yelling at him too much. And I was just stressed out all the time. So I'd take little trips by myself for like a long weekend. And one time I went, it was toward the end of my relapse. I went to the Ritz-Carlton in Half Moon Bay. And I stayed in our old honeymoon suite. And it was like, I spent, I think, $3,000 for four nights there. And when I was there, I got very drunk. And one day I woke up, I think I was only there one day and I got drunk and I woke up the next day. I didn't recognize who I was. I felt horrible. And I, I prayed, I prayed to God to help me. I prayed for strength to ask for help. And that's when I called my mom and I told her I was ready to get treatment because my family was extremely worried about me. They didn't find out about my relapse until about 10 months into it, but they were very, very scared for me because they knew where it was going to take me and they, they were at a loss. So I called my mom and I told her I wanted help and um, kind of looked at my insurance and she found the number for Kaiser. And so I called Kaiser CDRP. They, they had a discussion with me and they told me I could come in the following week because um, I had to make arrangements with my work to take the time off. So um, I was, um, I think it was just kind of that amazing grace moment, like where I was looking out at the bluff at the Pacific Ocean in this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful hotel. And it's like the sky opened up and I was like, I'm not going to live like this ever again. Like something has got to change. And I decided also I'd commit to myself to getting out of the marriage. And I knew the only way I could get out of the marriage was to be on my own but sober. I knew that I couldn't leave the marriage if I wasn't sober, but I also knew that I wasn't going to live long. So I really had to make a real decision right there, but I, I wanted life. I wanted to live. What I didn't know, what I didn't expect was how wonderful sobriety would be. Had I known how wonderful sobriety and recovery was, I would have done it over 20 years ago, but I just didn't know. I hadn't, I had no idea how wonderful it is, and it's so wonderful. Well, let's spend, let's spend our last few minutes talking about that because you have a pretty exciting life. You've done some really interesting things. Tell us about some of the great things that you've been pursuing now that you have your life back and have, have your whole self. Everything's really good. I mean, my career number one is, like, awesome. I'm very lucky. I'm a consultant. Um, I have a wonderful, wonderful job. I work with wonderful people, but um, – what I've really been doing is I have a social life. I have so many friends. I made so many good friends in treatment, too. And um, by my one-year anniversary, I decided to take flying lessons because I have a fear of flying. And I was worried that I would relapse on commercial flight um, because of that anxiety. I had really bad anxiety and panic attacks that always led to my drinking. So um, my doctor had said to me, well, I'll give you a very mild sedative if you're going to go on a plane and I looked at him like are you kidding like are you kidding me no no I said there's got to be another way and I went to Maui and I was okay on the flight over there and I was out on a canoe and I saw this Cessna fly over my head and I'm like that's how I'm going to get over my fear of flying 
So as soon as I got back, I called um, Tradewinds Aviation here in San Jose, and I set up a demo flight. And my CFI, my certified flying instructor, he gave me uh, my first demo flight. He let me have the wheel. He let me take the wheel. And my fear just melted away. So i taken about 13 flying lessons. Um, I haven't landed yet, but I've done pretty much everything else. <laughs> And um, it's going to take me a long time probably to get my solo, but I have, it's a very expensive hobby, so I can't do it all the time. So that's one of the fun, fun things I've been doing. And then I've been um, going to Europe about twice a year. Um, I've been to France three times and I went to Rome with my cousin last year. Um, So I've just, and I take these just like one week trips. I don't go for very long because I have to work and pay the bills. I have a mortgage all by myself. But I make sure I treat myself and I give myself something to look forward to. I think the key in recovery for us is that we need, because we just love excitement. So I always try to book out something at least a few months in advance that I can, like, keep my eye on the ball, you know. So when I'm having those rough days, I'm like, I'm going to be going to Hawaii or I'm going to be going to France or I'm going to be doing something special. Um, I also um, have weekly massages. To deal with my stress and my tension and then Pilates two to three times a week which is really keeping me fit and it's very um, it's great for I think you guys or at least one of you ladies um, do Pilates but it's really great for mind body connection um, I do some meditation um, and basically I just have fun and I date I've dated lots of guys who are quite a bit younger than me just for fun but I, I'm having a blast. Like, I'm having my 20s all over again, um, but, but better because I'm actually single now, where before I was always involved with somebody. Um, so being single and alone and accountable to myself um, has been really amazing. Um, I feel like I'm a grown-up adult who's still a child on the inside and has the world at her feet. Your really voice changes. <laughs> As you talk about the present versus the past, the sun comes out in your voice. It, oh, it's like okay, your your joy just shines through. Um, I mean, not only in that you're such a beautiful woman, but just you're. I'm sure our listeners can hear it. The the difference in in your voice in talking about your life now versus then. It's I can feel it. The energy oh, coming off of you. Um, good. Well, it's amazing. It, it's, it's amazing. I amazing. love it. it now, I guess I want to ask you two things. We're running out of time, so um, it's really important to me that I make sure I hear these things from you. When you handle hard things now, because life is hard, we can't escape that. How do you? What's different? How do you manage now? Um, Oh, this is easy for me now. Um, it took a while. It took a lot of practice. Uh, gratitude list, number one, gratitude. Um, then I also um, will kind of play the tape of my past to remind myself to keep myself in check. You know, it's not really a bad day if you're not in the hospital dying. Um, it's just <laughs> basically uh, knowing and reminding myself that everything that happens in any moment is part of my story and part of my journey, and it has to be happening because it's leading me to a better place. Um, staying very mindful and focused of the moment, being in the moment, not future tripping. Um, another word from recovery and treatment was you know, worrying too much about the future, things that I have no control about over in the present. Uh, staying in control in the present, just controlling what I can in the present, not trying to change anybody else. 
Also, um, and if I'm really still stuck in self-pity, I have so many friends that are going through so many awful in a given moment. I call them or I text them. I check in with them, ask them to tell me their problems are, and then we talk about their problems, and then I feel better for helping them. And it puts my life into perspective. It's like, hey, you know, bad things happen to everybody. Everyone has bad days. I have to remind myself that I'm a human. But this is part of the vehicle. This is the engine I was born in, and I need to learn how to drive it. I feel like I, I love was born that. in a vehicle, and I don't have the manual for it. So now I have to <laughs> the manual. <laughs> so, um, and also, oh, my attitude. I try to keep my attitude really good. And I, wanted, I have to say this. Um, when I was taking my first flying lesson, one of the terms in flying is for the nose of the plane, keeping the attitude um, at a certain level. And I said, what do you mean attitude? Aren't you talking about altitude? He says, no, it's the attitude of the plane. So when the attitude of the plane, he's like, what you want is for the plane to be flying straight. You want to keep the attitude at a certain angle. And I was like, oh, my gosh, attitude. So if it's going up too much and you don't want it to be, you have to adjust it. Or if you're going down too quickly, you have to adjust your attitude. So I think of whenever my attitude is getting out of control, I check my attitude indicator. And that's actually a real instrument on the, the control plan, panel of the plane. And so I'm like, what's my attitude indicator telling me right now? And if I can kind of visualize in my mind that it's going down and it's going down fast, I pull up the controls and I readjust and I do it quickly because I can really spiral if I, if I don't keep myself in check when my emotions are taking over. Um, as I said, I'm an emotional drinker and I'm an emotional person. <laughs> so um, that's another thing that keeps me in check. I love that. That's a really, that's a really great visual and a, and a good reminder that we sort of, sometimes I think we feel pressure to always be going up, 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 up. And the reminder is mm-hmm. to go forward, right? Cause yeah, you can't exactly. continually go up. <laughs> you we have to forward. reach our, we have to reach our, our altitude, you know, by getting out the door, getting to our destination kind of, or going on our destination. But if we keep going out, we're going out of the atmosphere and then we're, um, then we're out of oxygen and we're going to, we're going to plummet really fast. So, um, yeah, that's, but that's yeah, a it's really good metaphor. My, my attitude, just adjusting my attitude. And I know so many people hate hearing that. Like if your attitude, you have to adjust your attitude, but it's true. But it's up to us <laughs> to adjust our attitude. It's not up to someone else to tell us to, because when someone else tells us that, what's our natural inclination to not adjust our right. attitude. Right. So I have to Show remind them. myself that I'm my, I'm my own parent and I have to, you know, be very mindful of my attitude, how I talk to people, how I relate to people. And also if someone else is having a bad day, I'm really good now at kind of gauging like, hey, it's not about me. It's about them. Like they're going through something. Um, you are a wise, was, wise woman. You know that? Well, I learned You're a lot a smart from lady. people with a lot of experience. <laughs> um, I have another cute little story, but I don't know if we have time for it. But um, my first day of treatment, I'm in my first group. And the counselor, he was like this, like rough and tough guy, like over 20 years of uh, recovery. And it was my introduction to my group. And there was probably like 15 of us in the room. So we go around the circle and he asks everybody to introduce themselves. And he finally gets to me and he says to me, so what's your story, princess? 
And I looked at him like, are you kidding me? Like, you have no idea what I've been through. So I went <laughs> off and I told everybody how awful my life has been, pretty much, like, summed up my whole life in five minutes. And um, the director of the program told me from the beginning, you know, you need to tell people who you are because if you don't, they're going to make it up. And I'm like, yeah, story of my life. Um, so I went to the director and I complained to the director, like, how dare this counselor say that to me? And the director said to me, you know, maybe it's not about you. I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, maybe he was just having a bad day. I'm like, I don't care if he was having a bad day. I'm here to get help. And he says, you know, I really want you to think about it. I'm like, I'm going to leave. Like, I'm not here for all this anxiety. He says, why don't you just go home and think about it and then come back tomorrow and see see how you feel. And I went home and I thought about it. And I'm like, that was his way of telling me that I'm (laughs) (laughs) self-centered. And, um, I think that counselor was doing some trickery to me to get me to open up really fast because everyone else in the room was looking at this girl with her diamond earrings and her diamond ring and her nice, cute little shoes that match her purse and her outfit. Even though I didn't look good, I still was put together. And I think it was the counselor's way of getting me to start talking very quickly and open up. And it worked. So I realized that two things came out of that. He was forcing me open really fast, and he was also um, teaching a lesson that, you know, it's not all about me. So um, I found Sometimes, that, to, uh, that was a takeaway. What Usually what really upsets us is is something that we need to work on, right? Like it's usually, yeah. if we've dealt with it, it doesn't usually bother us. But, boy, when something just gets our goad going, it's usually because there's something in there that we need to work on. That's. Yeah, you. and call me princess, like I've had it easy. He says, it looks like, oh, he says, well, what's your story, princess? It looks like you've had it good your whole life. And <laughs> I, I lost I I lost it. I mean, I Smart really guy, it. yeah. <laughs> so yeah. last question for you. Tell me, um, what words of encouragement do you have for anyone listening who, who just feels like they can't do it? Oh, my gosh. Oh, gosh. Don't give up on yourself. Um this can be done, but it takes, it takes support, and it doesn't matter what type of program you're in or what kind of group you find, but this is not something that can be done on your own. Definitely, it will take you. Um, it takes all the work is you, but it takes a support system. It takes the village, and, and um, if you're isolated and you're lonely, that's a symptom of your alcoholism, and the remedy to that, of that is, is to connect with other human beings. And I mean, outside of being on your computer, and I belong to a lot of recovery groups, and they're great on, online, but, um, you know, actually getting yourself in front of people and, and just talking about who you are and connecting with other people is, is really the way out of this. Um, and if you, if you think that it's too hard, it's supposed to be hard. Most people can't even imagine that are not alcoholics, how difficult this is. That's why it's so important to find other people in recovery to help you through this because we know the way. We've been where you are. I I remember day one like it was yesterday, and I continue to work with people at day one because I will not allow myself to forget who I am. I also want to give them the encouragement and the hope that they can do it. And this, this disease had such a grip on me. It took me to the bottom, a very deep, deep bottom. The only other level I had was a coffin. And I, I hate saying, like, if I could do it, you could do it. 
but the, if you're not even at a close grip like I was, there's even more hope for you. But if you're at a very dark bottom, you need to find anybody. Email me. I I will give Jean my contact information. I, I really... I've made it part of my life mission to get my story out so I can let people know this is where it will lead if you don't stop. But also, hey, there's so much great stuff on the other side. I mean, it's wonderful being sober. I mean, I love the feeling of being happy in my own body that is sober. I had never even experienced this in my entire life until I was 41, what it felt like to be happy in a sober body that's what we're chasing when we're drinking and this can all be achieved in sobriety. Everything that Who'd I'm happy about, I, I used to drink to feel this way, but I never felt this way. Of course. Um, I used to drink to feel the way I do now, if that makes any sense. I'm sure for you, Jean, yeah. it does, but it takes a while it totally to get does. there, you know, it, it doesn't yeah, it happen does. right away, but I, I look at it You're as so weight right. loss. You know, this, this takes a while. Like, but things get easier, and it does start to click. It starts to make sense. Um, you you start looking better. You start feeling better. You start thinking better. You know, this is also about changing how we think and how how we perceive the world. Um, my perception of the world was very uh, dark and negative, um, and it's it's gone the other direction. It's very light and positive. Um, people I meet that have never known me before. Uh, I got into recovery, say to me, gosh, you're always so happy and so positive. Like, why are you this way? And I'm like, oh, if you only do. (laughs) (laughs) But but I'm like, you know, life is just too wonderful to miss out on. We're we're here for a very short period of time. And this is our turn. This is our turn. And this is not, this is not um, dress rehearsal. We don't get a second chance. This is it. This is, this is opening night. This is opening night. So you can do it if you think you can't. I know you can. So many people I know in recovery have long-term recovery. They're very successful in it. Um, I go to speaker meetings sometimes just to hear people with over 20 years of recovery. They inspire me, and their lives are so wonderful, and they have that glow. And I want to keep that glow. Amen. Well, thank you for sharing your story with our listeners. You know, thank by you, telling our stories, we, we change each other's lives. We hear ourselves in each other's stories, and we, we hear maybe where we, where we could have gone that we didn't go, you know, yeah. and we hear where yeah. we've been, and, um, yeah. and we also hear what's possible. So I thank you for sharing the, the bad stuff that's hard and the good stuff that's great, and I'm, I'm really glad you're here. Well, thank you so much for interviewing me, Jean. I really hope, if nothing else, I just hope that someone who, who needs help will ask for it and someone who's starting out will just keep going. And anyone who has a loved one who's an alcoholic, don't point fingers and blame them. They know. They know they're sick. Just try to steer them in the right direction to the right people who can help them. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thank you, Jean. All right. Well, we're out of time, so I'm going to wrap things up. Um, listeners, if you have feedback, you'd like to share your own story here like Gabby did, or if you 
just want to write me something to read on the air, you can write to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com. And uh, if you have something you'd like to share with Gabby uh, to thank her for uh, what you heard here tonight, or if she said something that really spoke to you, or just anything, uh, you can also send your message to me at thebubblehour at gmail.com, and I'll make sure she gets it. The Bubble Hour is supported by the efforts of Shining Strong. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, iTunes. Feel free to give us a nice review. That helps us out. And you can see us on the web at thebubblehour.com. And my blog is Unpickled. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find me on the interweb at unpickledblog.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Gabby, thanks for being here. And until next time, everyone, take good care. I own it. I did that. Not proud that that was me.